You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. I had then but two regiments in line of battle, and a third prolonging my line of skirmishers, when the avalanche rolled upon me. Hold on there, hard and firm. There is no reserve. It was a hard fight. The Confederates appeared to have the devil in them. On the other side, my men did not flinch. Like veterans, accustomed to make the best of every resource, they had sheltered themselves behind the rocks and trunks of trees which were on the line, and their assailants were received at a distance of twenty yards with a deadly volley, every shot of which was effective. On both sides, each one aimed at his man, and men fell dead and wounded with frightening rapidity. An aide from the division commander came through the hail of bullets to ask another regiment from me. Tell General Burney, I replied to him, that I have not a man left who is not upon his hands all that he can do, and tell him that, far from being able to furnish reinforcements to anyone, I shall be in need of them myself in less than a quarter of an hour. In fact, the persistent nature of the attack showed clearly that we had a contest with superior forces. Happily, the nature of the ground broke up their lines and enabled us to hold them at a distance by the rapidity and precision of our fire. One would have said that each believed the destiny of the Republic was attached to the desperate vigor of his efforts, so that we maintained our hold. It seemed to me that nearly half were struck down. It remained to be seen how long the other half would hold out. Colonel Regis de Trobriand, Brigade Commander, Bernie's Division, 3rd Corps, Army of the Potomac. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 351 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, by the end of the last episode, the issue was no longer in doubt on Little Round Top, but the fierce fighting that had begun along the slopes of Hawks Ridge had radiated to other sectors as well. From start to finish, the fight for Little Round Top had lasted about one hour. During all that time and continuing well afterward, combat was also raging with fury in Farmer George Rose's 20-acre wheat field, 
several hundred yards to the northwest of the rocky hilltop. But while the attack and defense of Little Round Top is certainly one of the most famous episodes of the entire battle, the bloody struggle in the wheat field remains, arguably, the most complicated and complex and one of the least understood events of the battle. That's because the rapidly shifting ebb and flow of the combat all around the field, the frequent attacks and counterattacks that cross through it from several different directions, and the significant number of Federal and Confederate brigades that fought here, all tend to make this series of actions difficult to comprehend. Participants and historians have, variously and fittingly, described the intense fighting in the wheat field as a whirlwind, a cauldron, and a maelstrom. The combat here would ultimately involve the soldiers of at least 10 different federal brigades from three different corps, and those of six Confederate brigades in all, so more than 20,000 men engaged in a life-and-death struggle for possession of just 20 acres of ground. If you visit the battlefield at Gettysburg today and stand there in the wheat field, it's sobering to realize, and yet almost impossible to actually wrap your mind around, the fact that it's estimated that by the end of the day on July 2nd, an astounding six to 7,000 of those men had been killed, wounded, or captured during the fierce fighting for that one piece of ground. As y'all recall, when Dan Sickles recklessly advanced his third corps to that line ahead of the position that George Meade intended it to occupy, Major General David Burney's division deployed from the Peach Orchard through the Rose Wheat Field and down to Devil's Den. However, because Sickles' advance wasn't well thought out, Burney had insufficient manpower to cover all of that ground and form a continuous line of battle. So what he had to do was parcel out his troops to defend against the most likely avenues of attack. The Rose Wheatfield formed the center of Bernie's very thin divisional line. George Rose owned the property, but in July 1863, it was farmed by John Rose with the help of another tenant family. Some 400 yards east of the Rose farmhouse and massive stone barn was a 20-acre field of wheat that was destined to become the wheat field at the Battle of Gettysburg. The Rose wheat field is located north of Devil's Den and southeast of the Peach Orchard. The field is bordered on the southeast by Hauk's Ridge and on the northwest by Stony Hill. One participant described Stony Hill as, quote, covered with heavy timber and thick undergrowth, interspersed with boulders and large fragments of rock. The Wheatfield Road divided the northeastern portion of the Wheatfield from the southern edge of Trossel's Woods. A stone wall bordered the southern portion of the Wheatfield and Rose's Woods. A rail fence ran perpendicular from the right end of the stone wall and extended northwest toward Stony Hill. The ground to the northwest of the fence and wall was low, marshy, and covered by a growth of alder trees. 
The topography of the wheat field was such that the high ground was located at the northwest portion of the field, and the field sloped down to the stone wall. As always, we encourage you to have a map handy so you can see what we're talking about as we describe the landscape of the battlefield. And both Bradley Gottfried's The Map of Maps of Gettysburg and Phil Lano's Atlas of the Gettysburg Campaign cover the action here at the Wheatfield with good sets of multiple maps that will help you follow along with our discussion of what's going on here. Right. At any rate, as we mentioned just a moment ago, the Rose Wheatfield formed the center of Bernie's very thin divisional line. Initially, Colonel Regis de Trobriand's brigade held the field. Most of his regiments took position to block the most obvious potential Confederate avenue of approach, that is, the open ground to the south and southwest leading into the field from the direction of the Rose Farm buildings. De Trobriand deployed the 17th Maine, the 5th Michigan, and the 110th Pennsylvania in that area. His largest regiment, the 40th New York, formed to the right rear, facing the Sherfy Peach Orchard. His final regiment, the 3rd Michigan, served up on the skirmish line, covering Bernie's front. The six 12-pounder Napoleons of Captain George Winslow's Battery D, 1st New York Light Artillery, unlimbered in the middle of the field, on the crest of the high ground, with the muzzles of the cannon facing south, Toward Rose's Woods. Even before the first Confederate attack on the wheat field, de Trobriand's dispositions underwent three important changes. First, in response to the growing crisis down at Devil's Den, he lost the 40th New York when it was sent over to the Plum Run Valley, so it would take no part in the fight for the wheat field. Second, when the 3rd Arkansas of the Texas Brigade attacked Ward's line near Devil's Den, de Trobriand could see its left flank as it advanced from right to left to the south of his position. In response, he moved the 17th Maine down to the three-foot-high stone wall at the bottom of the wheat field at the tree line. As Lieutenant Colonel Charles Merrill of the 17th reported, quote, The line was formed behind a stone wall which afforded a strong position. We opened fire upon the enemy, then within 100 yards of us. The contest became very severe. By the by, but the fire from the 17th Maine that lashed the left flank of the 3rd Arkansas as it pushed through Rose's Woods during the initial stages of the attack on Ward was one of the reasons Ward's Federals were able to maintain their line as long as they did. Exactly. In any case, the movement of the 17th Maine to the stone wall led to the third important change to de Trobriand's dispositions, since it opened a 150-yard gap in his line. As a result, the 8th New Jersey and 115th Pennsylvania from Colonel George Burling's brigade from the 3rd Corps Reserve were brought up, making them the first Union reinforcements to arrive in the wheat field. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? 
Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Hey y'all, spooky season is here, and if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On the Confederate side, shortly after Benning's Georgia Brigade had gone forward to support the Texans in their assault on Devil's Den, Tyg Anderson's Georgia Brigade had advanced as well, also in answer to a request for support from Brigadier General Jerome Robinson, commander of the Texas Brigade. Anderson's men moved across to open fields under heavy artillery fire. Their position on the left of Hood's second line put them uncomfortably close to the massed Union cannon in and just east of the Peach Orchard. Those guns now fired southwestward, enfilading the Georgians' line as they marched across the fields and clambered over the post and rail fences along the Emmitsburg Road. All the way, shell bursts cut down men by twos and threes, leaving them in crumpled heaps along the brigade's line of advance or draped limply over the top rail of a fence. Lieutenant Colonel John Maunger of the 9th Georgia was one of the many officers who strove to reform his men as quickly as possible after they had crossed the road and the fences. Boys, guide right, shouted Maunger, who then disappeared in a flash, a roar, and a cloud of smoke, dust, and flying fence rails and body parts. The shaken survivors formed up and pressed on. The 8th Georgia was also taking a pounding as it crossed the open fields. One shell struck Sergeant Travis Maxey full in the chest, disintegrating him from the waist up and so dousing Sergeant Jeff Copeland in blood that Captain John Reed thought Copeland was wounded and watched in amazement as the gory soldier marched on, keeping pace with the regiment as if nothing had happened. Other shells opened holes in the line 
but the men stepped over the mangled bodies of their comrades, closed the gaps, and moved on. Then came the order, double quick, and the Georgians trotted forward across the gently rising ground toward the small orchard of the Rose Farm. They passed through the orchard, leaving the stone farmhouse and stone barn on their left as they entered the extensive woodlot known as Rose's Woods, driving the federal skirmishers there before them. Tyke Anderson's Georgians descended a steep rocky slope into the green, shadowy valley of the west branch of Plum Run, sometimes also called Rose's Run. Across the valley, the ground rose steeply toward Hawks Ridge on the Georgians' right front, and more gradually toward the wheat field, opposite the brigade's center and left. In both locations, Union troops waited. Those Federals were the ones who had defeated the 3rd Arkansas on the left of the Texas Brigade and kept alive the Federal hopes of holding the triangular field in Devil's Den. In the woods on northern Hawks Ridge was Ward's Brigade of Yankees, and along the stone wall where the wheat field bordered Rose's Woods was the 17th Maine of De Trobriand's Brigade. As you guys already know, the 17th Maine had poured that severe fire into the left flank of the 3rd Arkansas as the rebels had advanced against Ward's line on Hawks Ridge. Now, though, the 17th Maine had to turn its attention away from the Arkansans as Anderson's Georgians came storming up. At the right end of Anderson's line, the 59th Georgia joined the 3rd Arkansas in the Texas Brigade's attack on the north end of Ward's line on Hawks Ridge. With the addition of that large Georgia regiment and the subtraction of the galling flanking fire from the 17th Maine, the Confederate attackers soon began to gain the upper hand in the bitter struggle for Hawks Ridge. This was all the more true once the Texans, along with the Georgians of Benning's Brigade, overran Devil's Den. The Federal position on Hawks Ridge finally crumbled under the pressure of the Confederate attacks. However, the wheat field was another matter entirely. As the 59th Georgia joined the 3rd Arkansas of the Texas Brigade in attacking the north end of Ward's line on Hawks Ridge, Tyke Anderson's other three Georgia regiments all charged across the low, marshy ground along the west fork of Plum Run, toward the stone wall on the edge of the wheat field and a nearby wooded, rocky piece of high ground just beyond the western corner of the field, which was Stony Hill, of course. In front of them was a single Union regiment, the 17th Maine. The oncoming Georgians heavily outnumbered the defenders, but the Federals' position proved deceptively strong. Fifty yards or so in front of the 17th Maine's stone wall was the west fork of Plum Run, a muddy stream a few inches deep flowing between banks a couple of feet high in most places. In those spots, the Georgians used it as a ready-made trench as they crouched and exchanged fire with the main men behind the stone wall. As dozens of the rebels were hit and fell into the stream, they soon dyed its shallow waters red. 
To the right of the 17th Maine, on the Georgians' left, was that 150-yard gap in the federal line that would have been fatal to the Yankees' hopes of holding the wheat field, except for the fact the gap was covered by a vicious crossfire from the Maine men along the stone wall and the other Union regiments on the other side of the gap on the slopes of Stony Hill. To further complicate matters for the Georgians, the west fork of Plum Run here flattened out into a soggy bog that blocked their forward progress, preventing them from charging through the gap in the federal line. Instead, the men of the 9th Georgia and the left companies of the 8th Georgia had to stand in the boggy ground along the stream and shoot it out with the Yankees behind the stone wall there to their right front, as well as those on Stony Hill to their left front. The Georgians tried valiantly to push across the bog through the intense crossfire. The 8th Georgia's color bearer, Sergeant Felix King, led the way but was shot down with a severe leg wound. Lying on the muddy ground, the badly wounded sergeant kept waving the flag above him until one of the regiment's lieutenants took it from him, only to be shot down in turn. The fight raged on, with the air now fogged by the low-hanging powder smoke from the non-stop musketry. Eventually, Anderson's left succeeded in working its way through the deadly bog and took control of an alder thicket beyond it, on the corner of the wheat field and squarely on the flank of the 17th Maine. The rest of the Georgians charged the stone wall from in front. Incredibly, the Maine men held on, by refusing their right flank companies, just as the 20th Maine was refusing its left flank companies about this time over on Little Round Top, the 17th was able to check the Georgians' flanking maneuver. The Mainers, still crouching behind the stone wall, now rose up and met the Georgians charging out of the woods in front of them. The opposing lines met along the wall, and desperate men thrust bayonets, and swung musket butts over its three-foot height. The 11th Georgia briefly planted its flag on top of the wall. But the stubborn men from Maine refused to break, and the Georgians had to fall back, leaving behind their dead and wounded in front of the stone wall, along with a single unwounded member of the 11th Georgia, a prisoner whom the Yankees had succeeded in grappling and dragging over to their side of the wall. Worse for the Georgians, the Federals' fire from Stony Hill became so severe that the 9th Georgia, on Anderson's northern flank, had to refuse its own left wing in order to counter it. By that time, command of the embattled regiment had passed to a captain who was still standing, and he found the noise of battle so intense that he had to convey his orders to the men by pantomime. Somehow, though, he got the regiment into the new formation. But it was all for naught. After perhaps half an hour of intense combat here in the Plum Run Bottoms, Tyg Anderson realized that his brigade could never batter its way into the wheat field by that route. The 17th Maine's position along the stone wall was a strong one, but the real Yankee trump card was possession of Stony Hill. By utilizing Stony Hill as a strong point, the Yankees could cover the 17th Maine's flank 
and pour a deadly crossfire on the Georgians in the bog below. Yet though Stony Hill dominated the wheat field to the southeast, it was an insignificant rise when approached from the west. West of Stony Hill, however, was McClaw's division's sector of the Confederate line. That is to say, any rebel attack on Stony Hill from that direction, from the west, would necessarily have to be made by Lafayette McClaw's rebels. So Tig Anderson gave the order to his Georgians to fall back to the west edge of Rose's Woods, near the Rose Farm buildings. Then, while a brief lull settled upon this section of the battlefield, as his men reformed and rested before having another go at the wheat field, Anderson went to consult with officers of Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade, the Wright Brigade in the first line of McClaw's division, to see what could be done about Stony Hill. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Gettysburg's Bloody Wheatfield by Jay Jorgensen. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon, just like Jeremy, Lobster, Nicholas, and Alex did this past week. We also want to give a shout out to Renee and say thank you for the donation. And that's it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.